0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to new data, daily infections have reached the same height as the second wave, and the number of people hospitalized is more than 20% higher than at the start of the last provincial wide lockdown. What needs to happen to get us out of this downward spiral? We'll talk about that. Canada has the worst record for COVID-19 deaths in long-term care homes compared with other wealthy countries, according to a latest LTC report. Unfortunately, this is not surprising news, but why isn't anything happening to change it? And a global shortage of chips that has rattled production lines at car companies and squeezed stockpiles of gadget makers is now leaving home appliance makers unable to meet demand. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business will join us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. Canada promised a spring supply of COVID-19 vaccine. That's growing now. Uh, The Prime Minister addressed this yesterday with millions of additional doses now expected to arrive from three different suppliers. Now, the Prime Minister went on to say that we are into the third wave of infections. And he says that uh, Canada is entering the final stage of the crisis, but it's a dangerous one.
1: We just need to stay strong a little longer. More and more vaccine doses are coming every week, so there's reason to be hopeful. So please... Keep yourself and your loved ones safe. Now is not the time to travel. Avoid gatherings and parties.
0: Uh, we've heard that advice, well, for about a year now, and I'm not so sure that we're paying attention to it anymore. Uh, the numbers here are quite frightening. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. project Jha, who is an epidemiologist and professor of global health at the University of Toronto. He's also a founding director of the Centre for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today morning bill good to have you with us uh let's let's talk about numbers here doctor and uh we, we know that uh, one of the things we were always told to be cognizant of here when we started looking at the impact that the pandemic was having uh was the impact it was having on hospitals on primary care specifically with icu units uh and ventilators uh the information i'm receiving right now doctor says this is probably the worst we've seen since the pandemic started last year
1: well th- it was worse in the january february uh Peaks, or particularly the early January peak when we had the highest numbers of hospitalizations and deaths. What's happened this time is this third wave uh, has occurred before we could effectively decompress like we were able to do between the first and second wave. As you recall, in the summer of last year, there was far less concern, far fewer Mm -hmm. deaths and hospitalizations. So that led a chance to basically empty out the icus from COVID patients and now our spare capacity is much uh, much more limited and um although the deaths this time seem to be at a lower rate than they were in the january peak the pressure on intensive care units is still quite considerable
0: and and there are ramifications to that as we've learned. Uh, we're, we're learning a lot more about pandemic and the influences of the pandemic as well. Uh, it's one thing to suggest that there's more people with uh, with COVID that are in the ICUs. Uh, the other element, of course, when I talk to people in the hospital settings, is that uh, we need those ICU beds for other people too. It's not just COVID that uh, that's impacting this community. There there are cancer patients, there are people with cardiac situations, etc. Uh, and and they're talking about overcrowding at this stage. That's a real concern, isn't it?
1: That is of concern that uh, we uh, will end up with insufficient capacity. So I I think the order of the day really has to be to ramp up the vaccines. Uh, Canada has had overall quite a a poor performance in delivery of vaccines. We had problems procuring them, uh, but thankfully, in the last A few weeks in in the hard work of Anita Anand, I think has to be recognized here, um, has led us to saying, okay, supply is less and less of an issue, but we're still not doing a good enough job to get vaccines to the people who need them. So only about 60 percent of Ontarians above age 80 who are the prime target have already been vaccinated. And you think, well, why should that be? We don't have mobile uh, vehicle deliveries. We should be going out to the buildings in which lots of seniors live. We should be having big drive-through, the vaccinations that has been promised at Canada's Wonderland. We should be having clinics pop up everywhere. Now, that we haven't organized well in Canada, and so the supply is less of an issue, and it's just a race. We've the, the, This uh, new variant is more infectious, it loves younger people, and those are the ones that are getting infected, younger adults. And we've got a race to get the vaccines into olders and then make sure that we get as many vaccines into the next age group, which will be basically, you know, 40-year-olds or older. Um, so it's just a real race, and we're doing okay, but we're not doing great.
0: Let me talk about the demographic. I find that interesting because uh, there were some people that I saw comments on social media, and this is going back, I guess, after the first wave and maybe even in the second doctor, that said this is an old people's problem. I mean, you know, we're we're almost, you know, bulletproof to this. Uh, the very few young people seem to have symptoms, and very few of them were hospitalized, uh, and it was, you know, we know about the long-term care facilities, but even people over age 70 that seem to be impacted. Uh, is this virus uh, directed at younger people, or is it just that the older people have have learned their lesson and are doing the things they're supposed to be doing here. It, it just seems that the number of people that I'm seeing right now that are impacted by this are, are, are under 50.
1: Yes, that, that's true. What happens is the, the virus evolves, um, and there is some suggestion that what this virus is trying to do is saying, you know, it, don't want, it doesn't just want to be the nasty cousin. It wants to join the other seasonal cold viruses and to do that, it would basically need to become more infectious and less lethal, and um, in and that seems to be what's what's happening. But here's the the kicker: some of the suggestions suggest that it's not necessarily um, less lethal; it's actually more lethal. I mean, that's not very uh, completely clear. So, for a younger person, you think, well, okay, maybe you take the chance and get infected, but it's really taking a big risk because you might just have a mild symptom or you might end up in the ICU, and we have no way of knowing who's going to go down those paths.
0: Well, and we do know, because we've been told, you know, people that have pre-existing conditions, uh, there are certain other people that are are living with certain things, uh, you know, cancer patients, uh, people with autoimmune diseases, we talked about that on the program yesterday, that effectively the the very medications they take destroys their immune system because it's fighting against them. That leaves
1: them more vulnerable than most of us, doesn't it? It does, and I think one of the strategies now that vaccine supply has improved that will need to be adjusted is The government, as uh, most governments have said, they will have a long delay between the first and second dose, simply because we didn't have have enough to go around. Now that I think will change so that the older population and those with, uh, with these kind of diseases will get their second dose much sooner since supply is less of a constraint. But the main goal we really have to do is to get the number of Canadians with the vaccine up, the U.S. has immunized on a per capita basis about three times more than we have. The U.K. is close to 50 percent uh, of its population vaccinated. Israel is close to 100 percent. Canada is around 10 percent. But we have to do a lot better. So this means delivery of vaccines and recruiting mobile clinics, recruiting businesses. All of this is the priority now that supply is less of a concern.
0: So let me ask you about the U.S. situation. You're absolutely right. I mean, they've, they've done a remarkable job of ramping up their vaccination uh, program, especially the dissemination of the vaccines. Yet they are seeing the same sorts of spikes, actually, I, I guess, on a per capita basis even more so than we're seeing here. Uh, why is that? I mean, I, you would think that, you know, with those vaccinations, that, that those numbers wouldn't be as high as they are.
1: Well, it depends on who gets vaccinated. And remember, the new variant is... Uh, more infectious. It's just it's a sticky virus that has found really effective ways to transmit, and it seems to transmit particularly in younger adults uh, uh, quite a lot better. So what's happened in the U.S. particularly, but also to some Canada, is younger adults are saying, "All right, we we've got this. We'll we'll. It's okay to go out. It's okay to." Um, go to uh, parties or go to basements and have parties um, because they think, well, we'll get the vaccine and it's not going to kill the elder people because they're getting vaccinated. So that's part of the thinking, thinking, well, we're not putting elders at risk because they're getting the vaccines. But the real race we have to do is really, it's it's a simple two-pronged strategy. We have to get vaccinations up to very high coverage in the elder people, let's say 60-plus so that the hospitalizations and ICU rates really drop. And so far, we have no evidence that those ICU rates are dropping. When that starts to occur, I would take a big breath and say, all right, we're 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 getting there. But the second part, if you really want to shut the the virus down, is to immunize uh, or vaccinate every adult. And that's going to take some time. Uh, and uh, the vaccine supply has improved, but our, but our delivery... Is still second tier. We still have to figure out ways of getting, not getting people to go for vaccines, but get the vaccines to people.
0: To that end, I, I look at, for instance, what the U.S. has done, and and, and I know it's an apples-to-oranges comparison when we talk about the flu vaccine and this. Uh, but I got my flu shot at my local pharmacy, just around the corner from my house here. Uh, a lot of people like to get their vaccines or immunizations from their family doctor. Would that not have been a, a more practical way to to get the vaccines out there, as opposed to having people, you know, get an appointment, go to a, an arena like they're doing in a lot of communities
1: right now? It's it's problematic for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. The uh, getting things to uh, doctors uh, and general practitioners is a very good idea. The uh, one thing that might help is the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine Mm -hmm. is uh, a single dose, and you can keep it under kind of ordinary fridge conditions. The the Pfizer and the others, you need these special minus 70 fridges to, to keep them in. So hopefully with that vaccine introduced, along with it, we'll have to plan uh, family doctors across the country to be able to administer those. So that I think will help because the vaccine is stable enough that it can sit in a doctor's fridge and doesn't need a special fridge. So all of those things we've got to do and plan. And what I've been disappointed in is what we don't have the communication of here's how we're going, here's where you're going to get vaccinated and there's not big enough of a push to, on media and social media and others to get people to wherever vaccines are currently available. Oh, exactly. I encourage all your listeners, go on the Ontario website, go on the shopper's website, any of the pharmacies, and it's okay to register even in two, three places. Just get a vaccine as quickly as you can if you're eligible exactly let me ask you
0: the, the the i guess the million dollar question that everybody seems to be talking around uh, is the vaccine program enough a, a number of your colleagues as you know doctor have been very Vocal about this over the last little while, suggesting that that, that we're putting vaccinations are important as you've already mentioned, uh, but there's got to be more to this. We can't just rely on that and say as soon as we get the needles we're going to be fine. In the long term, that's the solution, but they're still advocating for well, what some people are calling a circuit breaker-style lockdown, uh, and and just simply saying we've got to face the fact that we're going to have to do this. We may not like it. Uh, we already know that there are going to be negative economic impacts, uh, but I- in isolation, you know, we with the virus stops spreading i mean we've seen that with lockdowns although we don't like them does that have to be part of the solution here at least in the
1: short term i don't believe it has to be and uh, and, and the reason is i just don't think it would work there is so much fatigue and uh, distrust that uh, people i think would just say no i'm ignoring the lockdown i'm going to carry on as usual what we could do and we've not done is really ramp up rapid testing uh, I mean, a simple way to think about it is jab the elderly and test the young if rapid tests were available for young people, young adults everywhere. So uh, case in point is, you know, my wife got the sniffles uh, and we thought, oh, geez, has she been exposed because she was out someplace? Uh, So we had to go and get a test at the downtown hospital. But if we had a rapid test at home, then we could at least say, okay, it doesn't appear like. You're infected. You wait a couple of days, and if the symptoms persist, then you go for the the PCR test. Mm-hmm. Rapid tests. We Canada's procured something like 35 million of them, but we're just not using them.
0: Where are they, so doctor?
1: Cause I, <laughs> caught up in bureaucracy, I'm sorry to say, they're caught up in too much um, too much uh, uh, bickering about well, are they can be used or not? And um, I mean, there is some good progress. Pearson Airport has adopted a rapid mm-hmm. testing. Uh, program in which I'm involved and other settings are doing so businesses are leading on this but we need rapid tests to be available as easy as um, you can walk into a pharmacy and get a rapid test or pick up a home rapid test I think most Canadians would use them very sensibly um, and not abuse them which is the concern Um, so we need both those things to be in place really quickly I want to ask you about
0: mindset i know we're just about out of time but i'm trying to compare this where we are today doctor with where we were last march 31st for instance uh and, and if I could characterize it this way we were scared a year ago i mean we were washing our hands and we were social distancing and and well we weren't quite wearing masks then because that hadn't actually been decided upon but we were doing everything i mean i saw people wearing gloves when they were going to buy groceries and everything they possibly because they didn't want this virus i i kind of get the sense of the way we're we're acting now is if we've let our guard down i mean what we're still we are wearing masks now and there is some social distance that goes on but i just feel as if we're not quite as as frightened and i don't have to really advocate for paranoia here but uh you know we, we need to be diligent And as you said at the beginning of our conversation understand the severity of what we're dealing with here
1: that's human nature to say look enough I, how long can i keep this up i think that's understandable um what we do need to do i think is focus the Concerns saying the biggest risk anyone has is being in an indoor setting with strangers or people you don't know without masks and in place that has poor ventilation. So for all the young people who think it's okay to go to a basement or go to a bar, which is uh, secretly, uh, secretly open, uh, th- those are just really risky situations. Um, that, that's what we want to try to communicate. Uh, I think communicating a mass fear, people are just so fed up, I don't think they'll listen. We've, and we've got to do more intelligent and respectful communication, which is know your risk, run to get vaccines, and as soon as testing is going to be available, t- use testing properly. Uh, that's the only path that we've got out of this pandemic. And if if we want a good summer, we're going to have to do this all together. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's not just with relying on the governments. We need businesses and media and others to step up and communicate the things that matter um, to, to keep us safe and hopefully have a good summer. I think we're all hoping that that will be the case.
0: Absolutely. Doctor, great to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for your perspective and your advice on this. Really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Take care. Dr. Prabha Jha, of course, from the University of Toronto and St. Michael's Hospital.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I
0: want to bring something else up that we've talked about uh, so many times on this program, and we are going to continue to talk about this until we finally see some positive actions uh, from governments. Uh, There is a new report out right now for the Canadian Institute for Health Information uh, that essentially says that Canada has the worst record, the worst record for COVID-19 deaths in long-term care homes compared with other wealthy countries. It, this is something that we've talked about ad nauseum here, and I know there have been inquiries, and the government promised to do this and that, yada, yada, yada. But as uh, Dr. Vivian Stamartopoulos told us, uh, the, the long-term care report shows us now that we've really failed our seniors.
2: We had some of the worst outcomes for long-term care across the world. I mean, we we completely failed these seniors, and the worst provinces that failed them, Ontario bar none, because at least Quebec, yes yeah, they messed up in the first wave too but they learned and they took decisive action so that they didn't have the same carnage in the second wave we did nothing
0: well what are we going to do about this and how much longer are we going to get report after report after report before we demand more action and, and more effective action from our governments joining us to talk about this is uh, dr james teeson dr teeson is a director master of health administration and community care and an associate professor with the uh, ryerson university doctor so good of you to come on the program thanks so much for the time today
2: Thank you. Good morning, though.
0: Good morning. You know what's even more disturbing about this as I read some of the details of this report, Doctor? Uh, we know most of this stuff already. I mean, it was really just putting into a report a lot of the stuff that we've heard anecdotally and that we've heard from various other studies that have been done, whether it's the Canadian Forces report from about a year ago and others like this. Uh, have we moved the yardsticks at all?
2: It doesn't seem to be. <laughs> so it, not not yet, simply. Um I mean, certainly there's a recognition and we're going to have more movement on infection control and uh, making sure, you know, homes are equipped with PPP and all that stuff. But the broader um, situation has not changed yet. Um, though, again, I have to admit, for in, in Ontario, there's some temporary wage subsidies um, going to um, frontline workers in long-term care facilities, but that's targeted to end in June. So a long answer to say no. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, And let me ask you about that specifically, and I, I'm, I, I guess I am picking on the government. I'll, I'll take that back. Why would they put a sunset clause on something like this? The problem's not going away in June.
2: That's a good question. I just think it still may be extended. Um, there's a broader, um, there's a recognition that those people need to be paid more, which means, but that's only going to happen if the sector gets more money, simply. And that money can only come from government or higher fees for the people that are using it.
0: Well, and we already know the problem with higher fees. I mean, it's it's already ridiculously high to to, to have somebody in one of these facilities. I, I the, the elephant in the room here that the government doesn't seem to want to address, though, and and I think the report sort of hints at this as well. Is uh, we have a situation here in Ontario of of privately owned versus publicly owned facilities, and and the numbers don't lie here, doctor. I mean, it just seems as if the 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 larger propensity of, of places where there are problems, you know, poor nutrition, uh, people being locked in their rooms and not cared for over a period of times happens in the, the 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 privately owned facilities uh yet the government seems to just turn their back and say that's not really a problem
2: yes they haven't done that much they're in a tough spot because these um private providers do provide so much care and it'd be a massive undertaking to make that all public but also those those providers do need more money to fix their facilities with, One of the um, more recent analyses of uh, mortality rates in the homes found that it was actually uh, multiple resident or patient rooms that um, contributed as much as ownership. Now, most of those multiple resident rooms, shared rooms, are in the private facilities. So they need more money to invest in capital to fix that situation
0: and and this is not the first time we've heard that uh i know they've been talking about this uh the, the private sector the public sector uh whoever owns the facilities uh it, it, the, there have to be standards, Doctor, and you and I have talked about this in the past, yeah, yeah. And, and standards mean nothing if they're not enforced. And when we keep hearing these same stories about the, the lack of care that's going on, and, and a lot of that has to do with staffing, but those are also decisions that in some cases are being made by administrations. Uh, yeah. if, if we're going to do this, we have, we need to do this properly, and, we, and sometimes you have to put pressure on people to comply, and I, I don't know that that's happening. Well,
2: certainly you need the pressure. But I think what you really need is accountability. I've been thinking a lot about yeah. this recently, and if you look at Quebec, um, they their performance in long term care was worse. They did improve, yeah. but they they were way worse than anybody else in Canada. And their um, long term care facilities are predominantly um, publicly run. And then in, in Ontario, we're looking at the chains that are had more problems than the um, other <clears throat> than the other privately owned ones. So what I'm thinking is that um accountability you know the the bigger the organization you know the buck stops at a higher level two or three levels above the facility level rather when you look at these not-for-profits you've got hands-on boards that have their eye on management so i think that the kind of dispersed accountability can lead to more problems and perhaps not uh, following the rules as well as they should
0: and and there's got to be, as I say, some enforcement about that and some stricter penalties to that. And I agree with yeah. you, by the way. I, I don't think that there's anybody sitting in an administrator's office in any one of these facilities saying to hell with these people. <laughs> I, I'm sure they're doing their level best with the resources that they've got. Those decisions yeah. are made way above them.
2: That, that That's right. But um, I, I, they, how can I say? It's not that they're under the gun when you have a board looking right, right over your back, but it, in a positive way, um, you know, you have more power behind you to enforce and do the right thing if, if you can say, yeah, these people want this to happen. And a lot of board members, particularly not for profit, have personal ties to the organizations and those matter. So I think all these kind of personal connections and um, direct account of more direct accountability is going to make for um, safer care in our long term care homes. And more money, though. At the end of the day, you go, you, mm-hmm. can, you need more money, as you were saying. I Absolutely.
0: I, I look at it this way. I mean, <laughs> w- whether it's a private sector employer or public sector ownership mm-hmm. of these facilities, mm-hmm. I, I, this is akin to me to like, like public transit is to municipalities. You're never going to make money at public transit. It's a service that you need to provide for your community, uh, and it's always going to be a loss leader. It's always going to be in the red. It's just the way things are because you don't generate that much income. Uh, and the same thing with this. I mean, if if there's a company and you know we can talk about whether or not this is happening there's a company that's concerned more about their bottom line than that giving 100 percent proper care for the facility we got a problem and there are some bad operators they're not all bad operators but you you know doctor here in the hamilton area we've had some horrendous examples of bad operators over the last 10 years or so and it takes a long time to weed them out and to do something about it Uh, i get that but that's only going to happen if the if the government of the day has the will to do it
2: <clears throat> yes, and they really do. You know, I I do agree. They really do have to enforce regulations, to make sure it works. Um, there's there's not a lot of money in that business, of course. And while the presence of private operators and multiple types of providers, I think, is a good thing because, in at least, you have some different approaches to how to do it. So we we just need more um, competition. However, um, when you've got you know, one or two year waiting lists for beds, um, the competition doesn't really uh, work that well. But so people take what they can get. Um, so yes, yeah, I, I, I still am reluctant, though, to throw out the private um, operators. I think that um, they are not beyond redemption. And I would agree with you with some proper um, enforcement of regulations and more accountability. They can deliver what we need more safely.
0: Doctor, what about a reassessment of actually some of the protocols and procedures that are in place? And I, I think we all fully understand, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, especially in the first and second waves, isolation had to be part of the protocol, yeah. uh, because yeah. we didn't want the spread. And the numbers that we saw in the number of not just people who got ill, but who died from this mm-hmm. was horrendous. We know that the overwhelming percentage of, of COVID deaths in the first and second waves were in long-term care facilities. So that, that's element. But now that many of them have been vaccinated, not enough, I think, but most of them have been vaccinated, mm-hmm. uh, there's a feeling right now that maybe you could relax some of those. Maybe you can let people in there. I mean, the self isolation uh, is, is is problematic, and this mental stress, which only exacerbates, I guess, their physical conditions. Oftentimes, uh, where was that discussion to say, well, look, let's let's maybe rethink this and let's get some input here, but about how we can make that circumstance better?
2: Well, the report does nod to the increase in depression that you've uh, you've alluded to yeah. when um, residents can't meet their families. And the families, too, have their own depression because they, they want to be there seeing their loved ones. So I, th- I think one thing, and this is a broader issue as we're seeing with the vaccine, I think we really have to understand and balance risks properly, right? There's no zero risk. And you have to balance off, you know, what's the value of this personal contact and the extra labor, frankly, that family members can add and help to um, append what's being delivered at those facilities? What's the value of that compared to the risk of the disease? Now I've been reading about 95% of the uh, long-term care residents are vaccinated, so they're pretty safe now. Um, we just got to make sure that most of the staff, too, are now, but not all. And I think it is time to open up and let the uh, loved ones in, not only to comfort and relate to their um, loved ones, but also to add labour, to help with feeding and so on at at dinner time and lunchtime particularly.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, there's no way we're ever going to get one-to-one care in these facilities. I mean, at any kind, whether it's private or publicly owned, mm-hmm. uh, and staffing is always going to be an issue, and, and they're, they're trying to address this, although I think they could speed it up here in Ontario. <laughs> but family members and loved ones, doctor, play a key role in that, don't they? Whether it's a, a you know, whether it's a nursing home, long-term care facility, anything. Uh, first of all, the fact that they're there is, is encouraging to the resident, but they can assist in a lot of these things where you don't have to be ringing the bell all the time looking for help.
2: That's right. And so, so they'll be sitting in the room or, or as I said, they'll be helping feeding and sometimes they're helping feeding other residents that aren't able to feed themselves. It's a real team um, work approach in these places because they're so understaffed. They really don't, you know, the professions just don't stick to their own jobs, right? Everyone's pitching in and family members will um, pitch in. It's not as regulated. So, you know, that it's, it's not as um, the jobs aren't as defined as clearly. So yeah, so you really need family members in there and also to keep an eye on on what's going on. And for you to think about the personal support workers, when you have um, residents that might have severe dementia, you know, they're, they're, they're really, they love them and they're doing their best to help them, but they really get a, a boost when family members tell them, you know, boy, I really appreciate what you're doing for my mom or dad.
0: Well, absolutely, and we've seen that happen pre-pandemic, and I, I guess that's one of the ultimate goals here is to get back to that situation. Uh we we do know that recruitment is going on. Quebec did a, a like a, a, an Uber job of this. I mean, they just last summer decided we're going to do this. And in the space of about eight or 10 weeks, they didn't fix the problem, but they made huge strides in a very short period of time. Uh, and I've, I've talked to the minister here and talked to the premier about this. And uh, and I've been critical about the fact I think they've got this, you know, well, it, within a year and a half, this is going to be fine. Let's, well, you no know, a little help to the people that are in residence right now. How do you make this industry? more attractive to, to potential caregivers in situations like this doctor because what I'm hearing from some of the people that are working in those facilities now is that that's great you know we're, we're training people Mohawk College here in Hamilton is one of the, the training centers for the the new program and it's free tuition and that's a great idea but as soon as they're coming in the front door there are people going out the back
2: saying I can't do this anymore that's right it's a very tough work um, it's important work and it's valued work and I think that the um, you know I guess what they call psychic income, right? Like the mm-hmm. um, feeling good about the work you're doing is an important element of keeping people in the profession as well as paying more. I mean, what do you do in any other business when you don't have enough people? You raise the pay. Sure. Um, it's, it's just straight economics. And the facilities are only able to do that if they get more funding um, and they need a better stream of income. And I've said this before, but what we really need, we really need to recognize that long-term care in institutions and at home is different than hospital care. It's a different field. There's an overlap, obviously. So we need a separate stream of money that just goes to that. And um, it might, you might need a new tax of some sort. I know it's a, b- a bad word to say, but I think we need a stream of money that is allocated, earmarked for long-term care. And it's there. And that's the Uh, All the providers across an integrated system can um, access it and use it to give care to our seniors.
0: You just touched on a point that, that I think is very, very germane to this discussion, and I'm not so sure that we've spent enough time on it, and that's home care. Uh, yeah. You know, we we there was, the people that are in these facilities right now should not be in primary care hospitals. Uh, that's not where they belong, but oftentimes they're there because there's no bed for them someplace else. But by the same token, Doctor, are there probably not some residents in these facilities that p- could be t- taken care of at home if the proper help and supports were there?
2: Absolutely. And, and also, they might be kept out of there longer because some of those, these conditions and um, like eventually, if you have very severe cognitive problems, um, you're, a person's going to have to become a, a resident. However, some of those can be warded off if you get proper care at home for a longer time. So You want to delay the um, time that you have to spend in a long-term care facility. But yeah, and, and home care really hasn't been part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And one reason is because not many people died at home, which is kind of, you know, you, you send the money where the problem is instead of sort of maybe um, supporting the solution that's in front of us.
0: Well, and we found that. I mean, I know the one survey that was done uh, last year that uh, we got the results of, I think it was something like 96% of the people, the residents in these facilities, say they'd rather be at home. Uh, but the 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 support just wasn't there and i think anybody would rather stay at home with with loved ones and, and have that sort of care i mean you know that that's why that's why they're doing reverse mortgages and everything i mean they people like to stay in their homes they don't necessarily want to go to an institutional facility you you're right there may be cases where it becomes inevitable after a time mm-hmm. but but why not stretch that out as long as we can and that would relieve some of the pressure on these facilities wouldn't
2: it absolutely and 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 then you got that in between space which are the retirement homes which are you know, quite nice places if you've been in them. Yep. Um, but, you know, they're $5, six $6,000 a month. Um, so, you know, not only reverse mortgage, what people are going are having to do is sell their now overpriced houses and just hand the money right over to retirement home operators. Again, I don't blame them. It's a market and, and everyone does it. But there's, I think for the, for the amount of money it takes, it's a lot better and more efficient and better for everyone if they can stay at home with proper support. Uh, The family are going to kick in at home usually, um, but they also need some professional um, clinical care at home and some support to make it work. And it's way cheaper than um, having people in institutions.
0: And I'll go back to your point, Doctor. And I, I, I agree. By the way, you're—I I know people cringe at this, and especially governments cringe at this. It's going to take more money. Uh, I mean, even for the home care element of this, they, they don't get paid as much as people in institutional facilities uh, to do a very, very important work. Uh, and again, to make that that area of, of, of the whole enterprise attractive to people that want to go into that field. You're going to have to they want they want to know they're safe, they want to know that they have good working conditions and they're getting a, a decent pay. I mean those are really the, the, the big three things. Whether you want to attract people to long-term care or home care or whatever the case might be, uh, we have to step up. And and in our system here in this country, uh, that's going to mean more government response. And I guess we have a role to play here too uh, because we the citizens uh, and, and the family members and loved ones of these people Have to understand that there's going to be a cost, and and, you know when governments need more money, uh, that may mean we have to dip into our pockets a little bit more. But it's for, I think, a very good cause.
2: I agree completely, Bill, and I think this is why we need an earmarked earmarked, um, tax or some kind of um, program like that. Um, People don't like paying tax, but if you say, "Hey, look, we all found out in the last year, particularly how um, troubled." the long-term care sector is including that at home for home care um you've got we're going to introduce a tax uh, one or two percent of our income and it's going to go into a pool of money that will be committed to this very important service um and protects it because as you you know when you say that you know pay and conditions are better in hospitals well that mean that really means they're getting a lot more of the budget right yeah. um so, so we really need more better advocates in that sector as well, and this is a, a shameless pitch. Um, it, it's, <laughs> I Go told for you, it! I'm, you know, <laughs> we have the program, the Master of Health Administration, Community Care at, at Ryerson <laughs> that I'm director of, and one of our goals is to is to make this a career destination, not something you're doing because you can't get into the hospital or the government system. So. We've, we're training uh, managers and people that are become good advocates for this system. I mean, one problem, I mean, you're doing great work and bringing this to, topic to your show all the time, or very often. That's that's great, but you know, most people don't really know how bad the system is until they experience it personally through exactly. their parents, usually. Um, you know, when you're in your 20s and everything's good, you think, oh, why don't, you know, whatever, that's way in the future. But before you know it, you're in your 40s or 50s and your parents are in the system and you go, holy smokes, this has been going on for decades. I didn't know. It needs to be fixed.
0: Absolutely, uh, Doctor. The discussion has to continue. We are so fortunate that you're one of the strong advocates, uh, uh, not just personally, but of course with the great program that you've got at Ryerson. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we'll keep fighting the good fight at this end too. Thanks so much for this today.
2: Well, thank you, and uh, and a shout out to my students. <laughs> I'll say, absolutely, they're in the trenches.
0: Yeah, Those are the future of this industry, and we need that. Dr. James Teeson, of course, from Ryerson University. Thanks again, Doctor.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on
0: 900CHML. A couple of days ago, when uh, that big ship was stuck in the Suez Canal, we talked about uh, the impact it was having on supply chains. And and, well, the pandemic itself is having an impact on what's going on with supply chains. And it's amazing to see uh, just how this is going to factor into what you and I want to buy, what we, we need to work with. And right now, And I don't know if anybody saw this coming. We always talked about things like toilet paper and other things that, you know, are we going to have enough? Uh, Apparently what we don't have right now, are microchips to run a lot of these things. We've got smart this, smart that, smart everything else, but they're not very smart without these microchips, and uh, apparently uh, we got a problem finding enough of these for the production of of, uh, different things, a number of different things. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the New School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Glad to be with you, Bill.
0: Who saw this coming?
3: Well, nobody really, Uh, so let's let's back this up just a little bit to give people context. As you are correctly saying, today, everything we buy is quote-unquote smart, meaning that embedded in your dishwasher, embedded in your washing machine, your microwave oven, your car, sometimes even something as simple as your shoe, there's a microchip, and that microchip is gathering information or running electrical processors, to maximize efficiency or figuring out, you know, when the dryer's gotten too hot and it needs to cool down or whatever it happens to be. Now, a year ago, a little over a year ago, the the, the COVID pandemic hits, and companies order these chips months in advance. So people had to make a guess as to, well, how is COVID going to affect demand for our products? how many chips do we need on hand, when do we need them delivered, and guess what, they got it wrong. No surprise here that technology devices, things like computers, uh, laptop computers, um, uh, tablet computers, smartphones, there was an increased demand in those because everyone had to connect electronically when they couldn't connect face-to-face. But that then led to people saying, well, if I make chips for those devices, I'm not going to be able to make the chips for things like a washing machine. And what we're hearing today is that there are certain product categories, categories you never imagined had a computer chip in them that can't get the supply of these little things. And now there are shortages of them out there on the market. So where does this
0: leave us? And, and I, I know we could probably spend the next half hour listing all the things that probably use these things. It's probably a shorter list of the ones that don't. I mean, we're talking about our, our cars. We're talking about just about everything in the house these days. Yep. And 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 this is not just a North American problem. This is a global problem, isn't it?
3: It is a global problem. So uh, the answer to your question, where are we going? Well, the first question is where is the pandemic going? Um, uh, I would have told you about six weeks ago that I thought the economic recovery was going to begin starting tomorrow. April 1st, the start of the second quarter of 2021, we'd get through the second big wave and it'll be all smooth sailing from there. And of course, that's not what is happening. We are beginning to see the start of a third wave Um, And as a result, then, you know, we can't quite get back to normal yet. We're still not sure when consumer demand is going to get there. My feeling now is it will be the start of the third quarter of 2021, or July 1st. So these companies are scrambling. They're doing what they can, when they can, getting what supply they can to produce products when they can to get them out onto the market, but to get back to a stable, reliable predictable demand, it's probably going to be another three three months from now. So as a result, it's just a scramble. And uh, if you're one of these manufacturers, let's suppose you're Maytag in China and you're making washing machines or dryers, you're on the phone every day, just like we are calling about vaccines. Well, they are every day calling chip makers to say when can you get us a supply how can you get them here forget about putting them on a boat let's put them on a plane let's get them here as quickly as possible and and these are the challenges you have in this interconnected world
0: uh, Now, uh, where are these produced i know china has almost cornered the market on a lot of this stuff is that uh, like ground zero for these things
3: yeah I, you know the vast majority of these chips are, are produced there they are are not terribly um What word am I looking for? They're not terribly sophisticated in today's world. They are sophisticated to what it was 50 years ago or 60 years ago. But today, you just stamp these things out in volume. And when you're stamping things out in volume, you're looking at places like Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. You mentioned China, Vietnam, all the traditional Asian candidates. Um, And for them, the problem is that once you set up the machine to turn out chip number one, If it turns out you don't need more of chip number one, but now you need more of chip number two, then you've got to reset, reprogram to produce the next chip as it goes. So this is the scramble they're undergoing. I'm not overly worried in the long term. We'll get this sorted out. But it was caused by the pandemic making people buy a lot of things that they didn't see coming and not buying some things that they didn't see coming. So we just have an imbalance in supply and demand.
0: Okay, but with the current situation, and and let's... Develop a scenario. You know, perhaps your projections right. And maybe it's going to be July before we start seeing signs of recovery. Uh, we have a responsibility, you and I, Marvin, and everyone else listening, as consumers, to get out there and spend our money. You know, we, we need to get that money back into there. Uh, I can't buy a new stove. I can't buy a new fridge. I can't buy a smart this way because they may not be there. Uh, you know, I may go over to Best Buy or someplace else, and they say, "Well, yeah, you know, when they come in, you're going to have one." Uh, it, that is this going to stall the recovery?
3: I, I'm going to say no because here's what I what I'm hoping most people will do is if they don't have one right there in stock that you can take home that day, order one, and and chances are you'll get it in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It's not like your it's not like the old Russian system where you order the car now and it should be delivered the day before you die. You know, there's there's <laughs> enough supply of it out there that yes, there's a bit of a delay, but I would tell anyone you know don't don't let that stop you from buying just consider ordering it and letting it arrive. Bill, it's been a long time since I bought a lot of new furniture, but roughly 25 years ago I moved into a new home and I had to furnish a couple of rooms. And so I went to a furniture store and I picked out some furniture and I said, great, now how do I get this home? And they said, no, you don't understand. You have to order it. It takes three weeks to arrive. Oh, okay, I, I didn't know that. And so I think it's the same kind of thing here. Don't be put off by the fact that there's not one in stock. Obviously, if your refrigerator died today, you've got to do something. But, you know, in the fullness of time, give it two or three weeks, buy from your local dealer, you'll be just fine.
0: Yeah, because this is, I mean, we're used to this. I mean, it's not like we can say, oh, you I know, I, I, can, I can I can, go to plan B here. We, we live in a smart world right now, and, I mean, we rely on these things on a daily basis, don't we?
3: Well, we do. You know, Bill, before I spoke to you today, earlier today, I had a couple of stitches taken out. I was at a medical clinic having some stitches taken out. And twice while I'm waiting to go in and when I'm being dealt with, power goes out. And to see the scramble in the clinic, because, you know, everything's got a computer. We've we got to check in this way. we got to do this. we got to register this. Then we've got to charge OHIP. It's all done on computers. Oh, my gosh, what do we do with the power out? I'm simple enough to say, why didn't we just get a flashlight or a candle? But it wasn't the provision of the service. It was tracking all of this stuff. And it just is, again, a reminder whenever we have these little blips that how reliant we've come to technology and why probably going forward we're going to have to double-check, triple-check, quadruple-check some of these networks to make sure that they don't go down. And I'm sure manufacturers have are going to review their inventory practices Given what's happened with COVID, given the likelihood that there will be another pandemic one day, probably sooner rather than later, that you know we'd better better take a look at the way we're doing this.
0: All right, let's take a lead from what we just heard earlier this morning uh, about the the vaccine situation. You know, it's uh, Sanofi in, in Toronto. Yeah. Why don't we start manufacturing these things in North America?
3: Well, great great answer to your question. Why why don't we? And and so the the question it becomes one again of uh, finding entrepreneurs who are willing to put up the capital and take the risk. Um, I have felt for some time that, you know, we often, people people will complain about the low wages in parts of Asia. Well, we can't compete because of the low wages. But when you have a highly mechanized or automated process, the amount of wage that goes in is very, very small. Not that long ago, I had an opportunity to tour the car factory up in uh, Cambridge, um, and I was quite amazed at how much was being done by robots. And when I asked the people about the automation, they said, "Is what well, where we need humans, we've still got humans, and humans we need for various kinds of judgment. But for simple, repetitive tasks or also high-risk, dangerous tasks, we've put in the automation and and i think today when you're looking at whether it's the production of vaccines or production of computer chips we can do it here and i think we can do it here relatively economically but we need some company or some entrepreneur who's prepared to take that chance and this is again i think a little bit of a role for government not necessarily to shovel cash out the door and encourage people that way but simply to let them know what we have available here We've often joked, Bill, that both London, Ontario, and Hamilton, Ontario, are some of the best-kept secrets in Ontario. People don't quite realize what we have in these, in these uh, cities available to a potential entrepreneur. So this is the role for economic development, to let people know, to, to put these ideas out there, and we can be rewarded with some of these factories opening here
0: well because it's not as if we don't have the technology we certainly I, I think we have the trained workforce or at least the potential for a trained workforce to do this and 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 this is not as if okay we're waiting for these things to come from germany or, or from the uk uh this is china and china plays politics with an awful lot of it. the chinese government plays politics uh and they they have a propensity sometimes to hold countries hostage if they don't like things going and not just figuratively but literally too like hey you know what we're not going to ship these things to you guys anymore because we don't like what you're doing uh with our steel products or whatever the case might be it would behoove us to at least consider uh, self-reliance because these things aren't going to go away. The, you know the the desire and, and I think the necessity for these chips is only going to grow.
3: Yeah, you're no, you're absolutely right on that. And here's here's the funny thing, Bill. You know, again to tie it to your earlier story. There is a little different around vaccine production you, you vaccines have a very limited shelf life, in other words, if I produce a, a vaccine for covid nineteen but i don 't use it within two to three weeks, it goes to waste and One of the concerns if you create a factory here is well what 's going to happen when we aren 't in a pandemic? Will there be enough demand for the vaccines it produces to allow it to work economically? But I don't have that concern at all with a computer chip. A computer chip doesn't expire. It can become outdated, but that normally takes years to happen, not a week or two or two months or three months. So you can produce these things, put them in inventory, and draw on them a month later without any problems whatsoever. Uh, I really am surprised that more companies are not looking at North American sourcing for some of this, especially given the technology to produce these chips. I think what happens, though, Bill, is we call it inertia. We get used to the way we do things, and we don't even think of doing things in a different way. You know, you wake up every morning and you have a cup of coffee until one day you can't have a cup of coffee, and suddenly you rediscover tea, and you say, oh, wait a minute, I could do tea instead. And I think that's one of the things the pandemic is doing is waking up companies, causing them to re-examine all of their supply chains and asking the question, just as you just did, why aren't we doing that locally? Can't we find somebody else? But just because I've always done it that way doesn't mean it's the right way
0: yeah i i don't want to get to the point where i'm actually gonna have to unplug the kettle myself i mean you know i i want that chip working for me in the in the the morning when i'm doing that sort of thing and making my coffee but it 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 just seems like the natural thing to do and i'm not talking about you know going to the extent like trump did to say okay everything's going to come home now we're good we understand this is a global economy and we have to understand that there's going to be strengths and weaknesses in it but uh to assist in the economic recovery that we're shooting for here after after the pandemic uh the more stuff we can do here uh i think the better off we're going to be in situations like that and and you know we've maybe relied too much on the fact that oh we can always get that from there and we can't get that from there and this pandemic I guess has really shown us that there are weaknesses in that system.
3: Yeah absolutely or, or maybe just say it a little differently that we ba- built a system based on a certain series of assumptions What COVID's done is tested those assumptions, and we have found some of those assumptions lacking. And what I would hope is, obviously not today or tomorrow or next month, but over the next couple of years, companies would say, you know, we need to have, we'll call them parallel pathways. I need to have two chip producers in case something happens in one, something happens in another. Bill, we saw this in part even in the last couple of years. Remember when our train network shut down due to a strike and due to the protests? That causes the problem. The Suez being blocked for a week, that's caused people to reexamine supply chains. It's good that these things, I actually think it's good that these things happen every now and again because it forces us to reexamine our assumptions and maybe change the way we do business.
0: In the short term, this is going to cause, I would think, uh, job shortages. I mean, that's why some of these companies are going to have to shut down until they get their product.
3: Yeah, the, or, or what they'll do is they'll shift people to build other things that, that you can build because you do have the raw materials, and then you've got to shift the people back when they arrive. So, yeah, it's a hassle, and, and uh, I think some companies are going to report slightly higher expenses from all of this. But in a way, Bill, also it's a situation they created for themselves. When you become so reliant on the next step in the supply chain, and then when there's a failure you've never anticipated, you know, whose fault really is that? A big thing in business today, we call it risk assessment, where we examine all aspects of the business and say, where, where are the mission-critical things? Where are we making assumptions that may come back to haunt us? And then let's start changing some of that or mitigating some of that risk as we go. There's going to be a lot of that introspection happening over the next year or two.
0: You've talked about how we're going to be spending as consumers on the other side of this. Uh, given the fact that we're, we're going crazy with real estate these days because it's something that's there and it's tangible and we can see it and feel it, uh, do you get the sense, Marvin, that when, when we start to feel more confident about things and we can take the masks off, that we are going to start buying big ticket items in, in a big way, cars and big appliances, things of this nature, uh, you know, stuff that's going to cost a fair bit of money because a lot of people have money to spare now because they're not going to work
3: yeah, and not but driving. Let's come at that in two ways, Bill. Uh, Last year, last year in Canada, 2020, our economy shrank by about 5%. People reacted to the pandemic by just stopping their buying. Now, our belief is whenever we can give them, quote, the all clear, that they'll come back and, and basically bounce back by that 5%. normally it's unusual to see the Canadian economy grow 5% in a year, but given that it shrank last year by 5%, we just bounced back. Uh, So we think that is going to happen. And the other reason why we think this is going to happen, you mentioned people being able to save some money and bring down their debt loads. But also remember the Bank of Canada has said that they aren't planning to increase interest rates in this calendar year 2021 and maybe not even in 2022 so that's a perfect storm a perfect combination of people some who have cash on their hands or also people who can get access to cash at a very cheap rate We do expect consumers to spend. Again, the only concern here is spend that money responsibly. As you pointed out, buy a car, buy a washing machine. That's the basic infrastructure that we need in life. I'd be a little more concerned if people said, okay, now that I've got a spare $1,000, let's go to the casino and throw that all away. (laughs) Ooh or go borrow money to go to a casino, oh, my gosh, that's terrible thinking on your part. So uh, I'm hoping that most consumers will react responsibly and say, yeah, let let me refresh my infrastructure in life, just like governments refresh their infrastructure. Uh, And I think that spending will be amazing whenever we can get to that all clear. It's just taking longer to get there.
0: It is. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, uh, thanks so much for this. Take care.